Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Charles Bach. He's author previously of the novel Beautiful Children, which was a New York Times bestseller and notable book, and which won the Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. His fiction and nonfiction have appeared in Harper's, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and Slate, as well as numerous other anthologies. And uh, he lives with his wife, Leslie Jameson, a daughter in New York City. His uh, latest uh, book is getting uh, very favorable reviews. It's a novel. It's called Alice and Oliver. Uh, and it is a, a portrait of a young family's journey through a medical crisis, laying bare the couple's love and fears as they fight for everything that is important to them. Charles Bach, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Tom. I appreciate your time. And uh, Charles Bach, this will be interesting to people, uh, well, all over, but in Utah especially, um, grew up in Las Vegas. Yes, I did. I grew up um, rooting for the uh, UNLV Running Rebels as they would, eat, you know, a couple times a year go to Utah, play the Utes or the uh, Aggies or right. Utah State. I think they're the Aggies. The, yes, all that's of the right. various teams, BYU, and always, you know, these uh, uh, huge, huge. Um, rivalries and uh they were quite heated but so i um yes i was in i was in attendance at several of those here in here in logan utah state university uh it seems like the rebels always broke the aggies hearts it was very close uh, a lot of times but the <laughs> rebels always seem to win i can remember i know this is not uh, uh may not be the most literary thing but i can remember staying up usually late into the morning because um Sometimes the games would be tape delayed and, and shown late at night, and that there was one time against, I'm sure it's Utah State, where it was like a double overtime game, mm-hmm. and walk-ons were playing because everyone else had fouled out. <laughs> I remember that game. Like 144, 142, something like that, and just staying up forever. And it wasn't, at a certain point, it's not even a good game anymore. It's just endurance. And you've invested nine years in watching it, but you you got to see what's going to happen. That's that's right. I remember that game. Yeah. I think it set a record for for you know longest game uh, up to that point. And I, I think that's right. That sounds right. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I believe it was heartbreaking for the Aggies. I think we, all that time, and I think we lost that game. But anyway, I'll talk about uh, Las Vegas. Your your previous novel, Beautiful Children, is is set in Las Vegas. I believe. Yes, yes, it is. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's um. You know, I, I grew up there. My my parents are still there. They're um, they work in pawn. You know, they own uh, pawn shops downtown Las Vegas, and that's kind of the environment I was raised in. And it's obviously a a complex one, and there's levels to it. And uh, I think I spent a lot of time working through that, and working through a lot of feelings about you know how some of the dark layers of the city and also the hope inside of it. And, um, and, and eventually it, it became that those feelings and those ideas came through in these characters in, in beautiful children, which um, a lot of people really enjoy. It's a novel that people either really get and embrace or it's not for them. And they leave one star on Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind right. of a take it or leave it book. Do you read yeah. the, do you read the reviews on Amazon? Not anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your first novel. This is the truth, Tom. I'll tell you. Um, your first novel. You kind of owe it to yourself to embrace everything, and you. It was such an exciting time. It was such a big deal. I, I had worked 
like I said, a very long time on it, and there was a lot of advanced buzz and excitement about it. And I wanted to know what people were saying or what was going on. I really, um, and I did. You know, I had the Google alert for my name, and I did would check Amazon. And I, I now I've learned my lesson. <laughs> and uh, this book, this new novel, Alice and Oliver, which is also, you know, a, inspired by some deeply, deeply personal things and is a, a, a emotionally a very complicated uh, uh, and intimate book for me. I, I, I don't know that I could do that. I don't want to know what people are saying on Goodreads. Um, I want people to read it and, and talk about it, but I think I, that as you get a little older, uh, one thing that helps to do is maybe protect yourself a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying. I'm trying not to. Uh, and besides, you know, kind of learning as an author, um, maybe not to go there. As you said, the, the new book is based on on events that might be pretty raw. I'm, I'm guessing. Um, you, uh, I guess we we can say that uh, it's it's based in large measure on experiences that you went through. Your well, in. Um in 2000, summer of 2009, my my wife, my late wife Diana Colbert, um, was diagnosed with advanced with a very complex form of leukemia. At the time, we had a, a six-month-old uh, uh, infant. Um, Diana passed away three days before before uh, our daughter's third birthday. And um, she went through a lot. She went through a lot. There were attempts through bone marrow transplants and through a lot of chemo and radiation to uh, uh, to, to permanently put the cancer in remission. Um, and Diana very much wanted to be around for her child. She wanted to be our daughter's mother. That is intense. Um, it's also the stuff of the best dramas. It's the stuff that makes you ask questions about what do I owe to myself? What do I owe to the people around me? How do those come into conflict when you're facing mortality? Um, and that, that it's a highly dramatic situation. Uh, uh, and I tried to write something that had the deep emotion of, of let's say plays that I loved when I was a, a teenager growing up, it made me want to write, like um, "Death of a Salesman" or or "Streetcar Name," a streetcar named Desire. Whether or not I am at the level of mastery as Tennessee Williams is is maybe not for me to decide. But I, I, it's a usually dramatic, tense situation. It's a question that where the answers are not good answers. There's one of those Zen koans that. You can't really unwrap. And um, I'm very proud of the novel, and I, I love the book, and I, I feel that the heart and soul of it um, is is really generous and loving. And um, I think one thing that I'm trying to do as, a, as just a writer and as an adult is to keep that feeling. So, yeah, I'm not going down and looking at the one-star review from mm. someone who's also uh, reviewed 
the 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 motor oil that they just bought the other day and whether <laughs> yeah. or not mm-hmm. it works really well when they brush their teeth with it mm-hmm. you know right right yeah exactly right. yeah uh, so how do you you're a writer obviously yes um you you've had this wrenching experience your your wife has died yeah. just 3 days as you said before your your daughter's, uh, daughter's. third birthday is that i how, how do you then go and write about that or or is that is was it helpful to you as as a grieving That's a good husband question That's a good question um i knew that i was going to write about it um diana had kept journals because she wanted to write uh, something inspirational that other women who were going through some kind of similar experience might take solace in or could find help through. Um, I also took notes, both for the purposes of, of what kind of drugs do I have to buy and what what's going on, but also weird details that I would notice during hospital stays. At some point became apparent to me that this was what I had to write about. If I would have done a 19th century art caper, it would have had someone in the heart of it who would have had a huge um, shadow over him and who would have had grief in his life. There's no way around that this was um, part of part of my mental landscape. And it was hard. Um, when I would open up my files and let's say look at a new scene and see what my notes are for that scene. Usually I would end up in bed for three hours, um, curled up because I, Oh geez, this is hard. Uh, at a certain point though, during hour three, I could start to think about scenes and I could start to think about what has to happen here. And maybe because I did have a book under my belt and because I, this, this is something that I have a level of familiarity with. I, I teach fiction workshops at, at college level, um, and, I, and I teach to grad school students. At a certain point, it becomes material, and I can start to manipulate it and work on it and think, what is the scene? And that's a world that I know. Um, and, it, and so it was very hard. And at the same time, it was also something that I could learn and ease my way into. And because it's fiction, I could make changes. I could move the time frame of the novel from modern New York to the New York of early 90s so that I can start to put maybe jokes in, like having two people in the waiting room reading different John Grisham novels. Mm -hmm. Um, So having the husband, Oliver, who's the uh, uh, married to Alice, hence the the two characters in the title, Alice and Oliver, having him be uh, a computer programmer at a time where the internet, where the first web browser hasn't yet been quite released and we're still all dealing with floppy disks and it's impossible. One computer can write on WordPerfect and one perfect computer writes with Word, but none of the WordPerfect files can be seen on the other computer. It's little things that can be interesting. Um, a time when you could literally, if you got online, you could visit every website in existence if you had a couple of months. Um, these are things that are interesting, that are kind of fun, and that give a little more distance to the book. 
and then make it not be about me anymore, but mm-hmm. about this this fictional world. Mm-hmm. And um, and I could kind of move towards an emotional truth with these two characters, Alice and Oliver, that still felt true to what our experience had been. But now it's kind of this lie that's its own thing. It's this lie that's better than the truth. Because if I would have tried to write a memoir, it would have just been 350 pages of me yelling at an insurance agent mm-hmm. or yelling at someone on the street or just crying in a, in a closet. So this was, uh, it's a long answer, but there's levels to it where you start to do things to create that distance and then kind of you learn to live with it, you know? Uh, so you're you're able as a writer you're able to as you say work with the material and uh, and, and get, get a bit of distance get to the truth through through fiction. Um, what would you say uh, somebody who's not a writer is 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 grieving? Perhaps writing is an oh. advantage for you. What would you say to to, to someone who is going through a similar grief process? Um, the first thing I would say, of course, is I'm sorry. Is that it's hard that there's no real answer. Um, you, my experience is that I still have a hole inside of me and, um, writing and working on this book was something that allowed me to come to terms with that and allowed me to accept certain things about the world because I had a young daughter. I wasn't maybe Climbing into the bottom of a bottle and rolling down a gutter could have been an option, but it wasn't a real option. I wasn't going to do that. Um, so my choice was to, my the thing that I had to do was to keep going. With time, um, my experience has been that even though remembering is difficult and painful, uh, that it's been better than forgetting. Mm-hmm. That the details that I forget, those are things that hurt. Those are things that are very hard for me. And so my experience is that it's hard, that it's a part of life that's unfortunately has, for me, has been unavoidable. And um, and what I would say is you, you everyone has to, you do what you can to try and make your way through each day. Um, my answer is that, yeah, you know what? I decided to try and write about it and, and make art. Someone else may decide that their way to, to get through is to make sweaters. If that's what get you, gets you through that day, huzzah, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a, it's just a, Grief is really hard. Loss is really hard. And um, and I think one thing that I would do is just try and, and honor that. And um, take a brief break uh, here coming up, but I, I want to yeah. I want to talk about your 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 daughter and how did how does a not quite three year old how do you help as a father how do you help her to come to terms with the fact that mom's not around anymore. Well, that's a the great question, and I wish I I wish I had a great answer. Um, some things I did, you know, when I had to let her know what had happened, I really did 
talk over everything that I was going to say with a therapist who helped me, who helped me explain certain things to her. She can't know and understand what it means because I couldn't even understand and know what it mean, meant. Um, the truth is, is that my daughter has a lot to live, that has a, has a certain burden that is on her back and there is no way around it. And I try and we try and deal with it every day. She knows her mommy, Diana, is in heaven and loves her as part of the novel, which is to true to Alice and Oliver before their child, Doe, in the novel even knows language, can speak. They're telling her, mommy is in your heart, you're in mommy's heart, so that they're instilling a love and letting her know about this love before she even understands language, that it's part of her understanding of the world. Uh, we did that with, with our daughter, and um, and now when when I want to when she wants to talk about things, when she misses her mom, one thing I say is, yes, you're right. It isn't fair, and it is hard, and you do get to be sad, and you do get to be angry. At a certain point, I also say that's not all you get to be, that we still have to, we still love each other and we're still here and, um, and we just try, you know, and you do the best you can. It is hard. You know, it was hard at pre-K when every day, you know, every day I show up, pick my kid up. And um, I'm with my little cheese stick and it's limp and I'm trying to find it in my pocket of my jacket or, you know, or whatever the, the, the seaweed snacks. And all these moms are there and they have their, their laid out, perfect, organic wonder meals and all the kids run to their moms. And my, my daughter does, did see that dad picks her up all the time. Kids did ask her, where's your mom? That that is part of her. That was very much part of her life. But I, what can you do? You you try and get some better snacks and <laughs> and be be try and be lo- as loving as I could. Mm-hmm. And um, I also I do try and make sure that my child has people to to talk with about her feelings and um, and that we're very much straight up and honest about anything I can be, you know, as much as she can understand. Um, but it, the truth is, it's it's going to be something, it is something she lives with. It's going to be an issue in her life. Um, I have Diana's journals and her papers for her, for, for our daughter, when for when she's old enough. Um, and we'll do the best we can. Yeah. So Adana's journals, and and you hope your daughter reads Alice and Oliver then when she gets older as well. Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I, I very much wanted, um, I very much want my daughter to understand how much her mother did want to be here, mm-hmm. and what she went through to try and be here. Um, so she she knows you know she knows about the book. The book is dedicated to to Diana and to our daughter. And she's ready. She's seven now, and she's a great reader. And she already wishes she could get at it. I've told her when you're 16, you're allowed. But yes, absolutely, absolutely. 
and there are fictional there's definitely fictional twists and turns and things that you know that both Alice and Oliver decisions they make that are not great and that are um that complicate things and that make for a great reading experience but my daughter may ask me about them and then I'll I'll explain to her that you know that's fiction and the difference between the, the two so um it's something that's down that's well I'm sure is going to be part of her life yes yes Let's take a brief break. We're talking with Charles Bach. He is uh, author previously of the novel Beautiful Children, which was set in his hometown of Las Vegas. That was a New York Times bestseller, a notable book. Won the Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction from American Academy of Arts and Letters. His fiction and nonfiction have appeared in Harper's, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and Slate, as well as numerous anthologies. And his new book is a novel, Alice and Oliver. More following the break programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association. Funding student scholarships at USU with Aggie license plates. More information at alumni.usu.edu. This week on This American Life, for David, prom night was the culmination of years of effort. You know, I changed a lot. Since sophomore year, I got into this crowd and stuff, and they just changed, I changed my, my speech, my dress, and all that stuff. I'm still the same person. Nice change. I'm just, I'll, this is a popular crowd. I'm, I'm just popular now. The most gorgeous girl in school, I asked her to prom. She says yes. Prom night. Damn. Prom night this week. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. We're back with Charles Bach, who is a New York Times bestseller. Um, for his previous novel, Beautiful Children. The latest uh, novel, Alice and Oliver, is uh, getting uh, very positive reviews uh, as well. And uh, we're talking with Charles Bach on the uh, on the program today. I wonder uh, if we could uh, get you to read from the beginning of the book. Do you have your book with you? Oh, I, I'm getting it as we speak. Okay. okay. Give me one moment. All right. Yeah. So as you say, you, but, you you took your experience and you you made some changes, uh, rewrote it, and and one of the things you did you you uh, recast it, to, I guess you could say reset it in in the 1990s. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I, I, I it's it's an interesting time, and it's a time that I think many people, or where certain things are happening that people can relate to, because New York City is right on the cusp of a of a gentrification which is something that many cities and even towns deal with is kind of this change that's, that's that is undergoing, which is kind of the end of the small businesses in America and things like that. But also the internet is rising and culturally movies like um, Pulp Fiction are coming out. So there it's, we're I guess America is always on the cusp of a change into some new generation or some new age, but there was a cusp then. And uh, it feels to me like I could just go back and grab that time. Like it's so close, but it's not anymore. It's really not. And um, that did allow me some, some, some space. And, uh, and it also, I think makes it, makes it something entertaining. Like it's a, a time that can be a very entertaining time. Uh, so yeah, I am, and uh, I am ready. Okay, have, I'll just yeah. have you have you read uh, you know from the from the beginning. Um, yeah, tonight there, there she was, and then 
and then uh, over the page in the beginning of the next uh, page, uh, yes. Alice moved toward its kiss. Yes, absolutely perfect. There she was, Alice Culvert, a little taller than most, her figure fuller than she would have liked. This brisk morning, the fourth Wednesday of November, Alice was making her way down West 13th. Her infant was strapped to her chest. Her backpack was overloaded and pulling at her shoulders. The Buddhist skull beads around her wrist kept a rattling time. She drank coffee from a paper cup. Sweat bubbled from her neck. Her scarf kept unraveling. She was rocking knee-high boots, sensuous leather, complicated buckles. Her gaze remained arrow straight, focused on some unseen goal. But she was slowing. A businessman had only a moment to avoid running into her. Alice bent over, coughing now, a coughing fit, bringing forth something phlegmy, bloody. This couldn't happen. Thanksgiving plans in Vermont had been set for far too long. Her mother was insane to see the blueberry. And an extended weekend at mom's with pecan cobbler and free round-the-clock childcare trumped whatever bug she'd caught this time. She'd just have to swallow it, pretend her usual zazz hadn't been absent for the last week. Throbs weren't emanating from her temples. This was adulthood, honeysuckle. You soldiered on. She was going to be on time, meeting Oliver at the rental car place. Alice regularly picked up winter coughs like they were sample swatches. She'd spent all afternoon battling that lozenge back and forth between her cheeks, the ground stroked lazy, the rally unending. A whole afternoon hacking through chores, folding T-shirts into her knapsack, making sure the baby bag was loaded with naps, wet naps. Out of their apartment, down the front steps, everything had been ginger, right until the coughing. Three increasingly violet, re violent wretches. The jewel of phlegm, its hue the light pink of a rose pearl, was probably nothing but saliva and coloring dye number five. Just goopy residue from the cherry cough drop. The rental agency was on the rim of the West Village, usually a five-minute walk, ten with the baby strapped to her. It took Alice half an hour. A rust-colored Taurus was waiting out in front, its driver's door open. Oliver stood on the side, making sure the suited agent documented every last ding. Hey, he said. Honey. He felt her forehead. You all right? She answered. Can you take dough? Then they were emerging from the scrum of the city into the bumper-to-bumper -bumper hell clogging every inch from Bridgeport to New Haven. Oliver kept blasting heat through the front compartment. No matter how many blankets Alice wrapped around herself, those weird cold sweats wouldn't stop. If anything, she felt worse, the chill deep inside her bones. Now, nearing the western border of Massachusetts, they sped down one of those empty rural interstates, tall barren trees looming dark on either side. Alice's voice quivered. Could you pull over, please? Oliver veered into the first roadside rest area he saw. The lights of its parking lot distended and spooky. It's nothing, she assured herself again. She lowered her seat all the way down, 
its body following the tight collapse as if her own internal gears and stopgaps had also received permission to give way. The sensation went beyond a mental or physical recognition of her exhaustion. She fell back and lay still in the collapsed seat and shut her eyes. For a time, inside the house that was her body, it was as if she were walking out of every room and turning off the lights behind her, one by one. Dimly, Alice was aware of tiny limbs readjusting inside the baby seat, the blueberry letting out a contented, somnambulant breath. She was aware of her husband forcing himself to sound calm, asking, Favorito? Instead of answering, Alice recalibrated, focusing on the pulse behind her eyes, the labored rise and fall of her chest, how much effort it was taking her to inhale, her weariness so intense now it ached. It's okay, she was told, the sweetest whisper. Alice moved toward its kiss. That is Charles Bach reading uh, the opening of his uh, new novel called Alice and Oliver. We have Charles Bach with us uh, for the hour. You use, uh, for for the titles of sections in the novel, you use some medical terms. This one is called, this section is called induction, and that has several meanings, uh, of course. Uh, you know, the one that I immediately thought of, your, this family is now inducted into a, a new world, a scary world. That's exactly right. Um, they're inducted into a new world. Induction also is the first and very large round of chemotherapy that's given to a leukemia patient in this case to blast away and eliminate all all the cancer from your um, from your white blood cells and from your body, and it's a long and um, rough and immersive process. And all of a sudden, this family is immersed in it. Um, my hope was to write a book that opened where the the medical crisis or the is like a thriller, and it sweeps a reader in, and all of a sudden you're in it. Uh, our experience was like that. It's immersive, it's immediate, it's unsettling, and I wanted an experience for a reader where you start off and wham, here we go, and you're in it. And hope, and I, my hope is that um, once you're in, you're hooked, and you really you start to learn and care about these people and you really uh, um, feel for them and you're in a, will be in an immersive and hopefully compelling and wonderful reading experience. Uh, yeah, it, it is a wonderful read. Um, so Alice says in this uh, passage you read for a time inside the house that was her body, it was as if she were walking out of every room, turning off the lights behind her one by one. It must, there must be something in it for people to go through this experience. Your body is failing you. And you, you are your body, but you're also your mind and soul, and so it's uh, very disorienting. I, I think it's really hard. It, it seems that way. I mean, I know when I've had whatever health issues I've had, and you, your mind is still working, but it's working. Sometimes it almost seems like a different way because there's certain things you have to accommodate or you can't ever get past the way your tooth is aching. And it and it 
does change. It does change you as a person. It, we do take our bodies for granted for so much until that moment where we can't do that, and then it's really disruptive. So, yeah, I completely agree with you, Dom. I wonder if we'd have you read another uh, passage here. Um, this is page 314. Yes, sir. And uh, starting with the first full paragraph, uh, what happens if I become that Indian woman caring for me, and then over over the page to, yeah. the, to the break. That's a beautiful passage. It's a beautiful passage. Uh, in this passage, this is straight from uh, Alice's point of view, and it's her who would be saying these things or thinking these things. At this point, she's in the hospital. Now she's going to be there for a while. She's getting her um, a bone marrow transplant, which hopefully will allow her to... to to live and take care of her daughter. Um, but this requires her being away from her child for at least a month. And, um, and it's a uh, risky proposition. She's been through a lot of medical processes by now and she doesn't know what's going to happen. And she's trying to come to peace with these things. What happens if I become that Indian woman caring for me? I can isolate the pain in my jaw and my mouth, reducing it to one small, throbbing blip in the vast blackness. I can place the absurdity of Al Oliver's appetites into a closet, shut the door, and let blackness wash over him as well. I can turn my back on the horror and fear that arrived this afternoon, my own absurd brush with appetite, when, denier, when desire manifested from the ether and walked into this room to sit at my bedside. But it also walked away, didn't it? I can stay in the moment of now, but it's so hard to detach from her, her being her child. Finally, a good half an hour later than had been arranged, the room's phone rings. I want to get it, but Oliver's already picked up the receiver is bringing the phone to me. She had a big day, says my mother. She did so good at the Children's Museum. I got a disposable camera and took pictures. I'll send them off to you like you want, every day. More than a year old, my precious girl is getting so big. We had a mac and cheese for dinner, then rub-a-dub in the bath. She's a tired tomato right now. Yes, you are. My mother describes the face that my daughter makes when she is trying to figure something out. Right now, she's scrunching her nose and tossing her head from side to side a bit, like what is happening is yucky. Anything she doesn't want to do is yucky. I hear Doe's laughter and my mother fussing over her. My heart is gray coals, its embers burning. Your laugh is the greatest thing, I say. You light up when you laugh. I am thinking of her when she is uncertain, holding her arms out to her side, palms up. I whisper to Doe that I love her. Today I am missing you very much. I wish I could have you in my room and we could play together. There is static on the other end, fumbling sounds, now a wail. I'm sad too, I say. I'm sad too, Blueberry. The crying increasing, becoming oppressive. 
Every minute of the day, I am loving you, I continue. She's tired, my mother says. She doesn't have the attention span right now. Then why call so late? My voice wavers, I'm on the brink. But Oliver steps in, interjecting, speaking over me. He calls Doe little macaroon. He sings to her the first letter of the alphabet. The second, the other end stops fuzzing. Tell her she is in mommy's heart, he says to me. My vocal cords strain. Mommy's in your heart. The other end softens, goes silent. I hear a garble, a questioning, ma, and then da, and ha, mommy, daddy, heart, I ask. Ma, da, ha. That's Charles Bach reading from his novel Alice and uh, Oliver, a young couple with their with their child going through a medical crisis. For Charles Bach in real life, uh, his his, di- his uh, wife died of leukemia. Um, it's interesting to to see that in a way through a child's eyes. Uh, a child uh, can't understand everything. But there are undercurrents between Alice and Oliver that you can sense on that, in that phone call. Yeah. The, 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 a lot that's not being said. Uh, I'm wondering with, with you and Diana, what, uh, how did that affect your relationship? We're, does it make you closer? Do you do, you know, that's a lot of stress that's, that's on it's the relationship. It's a huge amount of stress. It's, it's unimaginable. Um, even as you're going through it, you can't quite grasp how stressful it is. We had certain things that allowed us outlets. Um, we, after all the procedures had been done during the hour or hour and a half you get before the night nurses come in to give all the night pills and ruin any possible sleep or fun you're having, there is like a little stretch of time. And I would climb into bed with her and we would take out the little red Netflix envelope and shove it into um, a hard drive and watch. Maybe it was Top Chef, you know, maybe it was America's Next Top Model or that the fashion show, the runway show, whatever simple little dumb show that allowed us to be two people at the end of the day who sit on a couch and watch a movie. We would try and keep our, keep life. Part of the book is the fact that even as this unimaginable and very stressful and very hard situation falls upon a couple, life still moves forward. You still have the conversations and little routines between you and private jokes. And there's still all kinds of care that people can give each other. And what other way is there to get through this? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure there are other ways, but for me, there was no other way. This was a solace. I found it in, I had it in my wife. I, hope and believe that she had it found it in me we had friends and people who loved us and family 
who tried and rose to the occasion and did the best they could. And that was our way to cope. And we also had this little, little, little girl with big eyes who was both difficult and who brought us huge amounts of joy. Um, and this was, this was our way, but yes, it is, it is not something that is, uh, devoid of stress or complications. Let's take another break. We're talking with Charles Bach. The uh, novel is Alice and Oliver more following this break. Did you know that people in healthy relationships have certain qualities in common? They manage their time. They're good listeners, and they put away their phones during a conversation. They show empathy for their partners. They're responsible with money, and they deal well with conflict. They know how to handle stress effectively and work with their partner as a team. These skills can make or break relationships. If you do not feel you have the tools to be successful in a relationship, you can learn. You can take a relationships class or go to a professional like a marriage and family therapist or a family finance counselor. This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you, and you'll even find yourself retelling them. They're that good. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6 on Utah Public Radio. segment with Charles Bach. Uh, he uh, is author previously of uh, the bestseller Beautiful Children, which is set in his hometown of Las Vegas. Uh, it was a New York Times bestseller, a notable book, won the Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction from Academy of Arts and Letters, and uh, the new novel, which is a portrait of a young family's journey through a medical crisis. It's called Alice and Ol- uh, Oliver. It's getting uh, good reviews as well. Um, amazing reviews. Uh, amazing reviews. Give yes. Me credit, give me some credit. It's getting great reviews. <laughs> good. One good. newspaper said it might be the best novel ever written about cancer. Not that I'm patting myself <laughs> on the back, mind you. Okay. Amazing reviews. They yes. Did say it. They so did say so it. noted. Yes. Amazing reviews. <laughs> and congratulations, by the way. That's oh, that's you. wonderful. By the way, uh, just parenthetically, beautiful children. That that took. Better part of a decade, didn't it? And you. It took a long time. And I'm sure there were parts time. in there, and that was your your first novel. The parts in there where yes. you wondered whether you were going to make a go of this. Every day, every day, I didn't know if I could do it. Every day, and I would say at least once a week, you know, you get the call from your mom or your dad, kind of wondering, don't you want to go to maybe law school, or what are you doing <laughs> with your life, or mm-hmm. what's going on? I mean. It's interesting because um, I didn't, that book is, I think that book is filled with energy and part of it is the nervous energy of someone who doesn't know if they can actually do it. Mm-hmm. And um, and sometimes it, it, it 
it's under control and some and makes some beautiful, wonderful, wonderful writing. But it, it also it, it's a vibrant book. I think part of it is that I'm throwing everything I know on every page because I'm just that that fear is is a fire under me and it's a fire in the book. I believe that. Yeah, and there, there's some energy from fear, and so I, I, yeah. I don't know if you worry that you lose some of that. And you have Bessel in your first one, amazing reviews for this one. Um, do you, you know, do you, do you have some fear about the next one, or, or do you feel pretty good? And, and you know, you lose some of that energy. Do you have that worry? I, well, it's a, I'm, you know, that was a book I wrote in my 20s and part of my 30s, and now I'm, now I'm uh, in my mid 40s. Uh, this book took a number of years. It took four or five years as well. Right now, I'm really enjoying this book. Um, I think I'm very proud of myself for it, and readers and the reactions to it have been have been just so welcoming. I'm figuring out what's next, and I have you know a couple of irons in the fire. I think anytime anyone starts something new. There's that question of, oh, geez, can I do this? Or here we go again. I wonder if they're all going to find out I'm a fraud. Maybe how long can I kind of keep this going? Mm -hmm. But I also think that in the creative world, it's kind of a good thing if you're not sure whether you can do it or not. Mm -hmm. that, 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 that's, That's something that can be very helpful because you want ambition. You want to try something that's worthwhile. If it's not worthwhile and a li- and hard and and a little and you're not moving into the unknown, why do it? Um, I think that's that's a kind of the uh, one of the principles of, of of a high level of art, and that's what separates artists maybe from people who uh, just phone it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so a couple more questions about Allison Oliver, and then I do want to talk yep. about uh, Las Vegas. Um, sure. So uh, just to maybe phrase this from your from your personal life, your personal experience. Um, so I think Diana uh, was a uh, practice Buddhism. She or, um, she or was, some Buddhist practices. She was. I mean, she did. She was interested, and in, she did practice it. She's also someone who. She had been a member of a, a Unitarian church. She was someone who was interested in many forms of religion. She knew a lot about uh, Judaism, a lot about Catholicism. She was she was kind of a live, open mind. And Buddhism was a a, a religion that she was quite interested in and, and and was learning about. Yes. And so that that's a preface to to this question, which is. Uh, she obviously fought hard. I mean, it's a couple of transplants, yes. chemotherapy, and uh, and I assume that's for for you and her daughter. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, letting go is a, is a tenet that maybe she would be thinking about as well. And, uh, did she wrestle with those two? Sides? Oh, I mean, it's interesting because it's a huge part of this novel. It's a huge part of the novel is to try and capture that tension. Because let's say Buddhism is one of the things is no possessions and you do have to let go and that that is part of life and part of not just part of life, but that is a key to a level of uh, enlightenment is 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 this no no possessions. How how could anyone possibly do that with a six month old child? She did wrestle with this. Alice, the the 
key character in Allison Oliver is very much wrestles with this. There are no great answers. Um, my thinking in writing this book, and as I came to really understand it, is these questions of mortality, the the threat of cancer, it is a great demon that is far more scary than any king in Game of Thrones, that this adventure and this epic quest is one that is hugely heroic and also hugely personal and everyday, and that I find and found the human drama in it to be, like I said, as epic as Khaleesi riding a flying dragon. Um, and I felt that I could, it was possible to do a book, to write a book that could create a reading experience that portrayed that. Because that struggle that you mentioned, that, that kernel of how could you possibly let go, and meanwhile you're facing the what seems like the scariest disease, what is the scariest disease of all, how can anyone deal with that? And um, I think that that's something that can I tried and believed that I could write a book that would do justice to those questions. Now you uh, you remarried, uh, and I that's yes. a cho- that's a choice. Obviously, you, you lose your wife, you you grieve for her, you honor her. Um, was there a point where you where you thought, well, I'll, I'll never remarry, or, or you're open to I it? I totally thought I was never going to remarry. I. I completely, I told friends and I, I had kind of accepted, well, this is how things are going to be. Um, Diana had wrote, wrote me a letter in her last months kind of saying, I want you to grieve for me for this long, but I don't want darkness to swallow you. I would love for if you, I want you to remarry again. I want you to try and live and have a full happy life and be a good father. And I was with her on the good father part. But I did not. I did not think I. I would. I did not think that I would do um, some of those things. I did not think I would remarry um, the person that I met. who was a, a wonderful writer and a very lovely person. A woman named Leslie Jameson. Um, she's. She is. Um, she changed that viewpoint. Mm-hmm. But it was. Uh, but I was not looking for a wife. And in fact, I would have friends say, you know, this could. It would probably be good for for Lily, and it would be good for you. And I, I I came to understand it would be a very very excellent thing for Lily. But I also um, personally, I, I I did not necessarily. I was not on OkCupid or Match dot com looking for the next looking for sizing wedding gowns or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So it's something that was organic and good. Uh, Leslie Jameson, wonderful writer. We've had her on this program with the uh, indication of the empathy exams. Um, oh yeah, it's yeah, a great book. A wonderful, one of my favorite books. In fact, when I read, I had met her once, once, and I didn't even know her name, but we had a very, very exciting, good conversation. I read, the, I read that essay, and um, I read that essay, and I, I was like, oh my god, who is this person? And when I discovered that this was a woman who I had met, I was just blown away. I was just blown away. Yeah. Very, very appropriate for for writers, I guess. To, <laughs> to I guess, yeah. be, be attracted yeah. to to each other's work. Yeah. Uh, does Does Lily consider now that she has two mommies? Is that? 
how that works? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. She she does call Leslie mommy. And in fact, when we when we got married, when we told Lily that we'd been married, which we got married in Vegas, um, the the first question she had asked was, "Can I can I call can I call you mommy now?" And so she she calls Leslie mommy, and Les, she has mommy Leslie who's around with her every day, and mommy Diana who's in heaven. Mm-hmm. And um, so she has two, and that's just fine with us. Yeah. You got married in Vegas. That could be, if I didn't know that you were grew up in Vegas, I could say, well, it, it could be right. colored one way, but I guess you probably went to Vegas for family. Is that? Well, we were going to be there. There is a, a very good book festival there, and we were going to have one night where, where uh, our daughter would be with, with my brother. And we were like, well, as we were trying to figure out what are we going to do, are we going to go out on the town? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? The idea was there was an idea. Oh well, we could get married, and then it that gained some momentum. Then it was like, yes, yes, let's get married. And then a couple months later, six months later, we had a large, more formal, giant family event. Okay. But really, it was kind of uh, uh, it was in true with my my Vegas roots. <laughs> Yeah, great. We just have a few minutes left. I do want to follow up with that. So your yeah. your parents run a pawn shop, I believe. Yes, they do. John's Loan. Oh, and they Jewelry. still do. They still do. Okay. Yeah, my dad is there right now as we're talking. Yeah. Yes. So you growing up there, you must have met all kinds of people. Um. Yeah, you do. You meet you meet all kinds of people. Um. And there's a the immediate thought, and what's true, and the immediate truth is. There's people who've gambled a lot and who've lost and who now, um, let's say, are going to try and pawn or sell their watch or their wedding ring, either so they can go home or they or so they can go back into the casino and then win all their money back and then go home, but one or the other. That's one level. But then there's also a whole economy of people who live in Las Vegas and work there, and pawn shops are just part of how of how they they make do. They might every now and then sell some jewelry or pawn some jewelry or a check doesn't come in so the television goes into hawk, but then you get it out and you take something else in. <coughs> Excuse me, sir. And But those would be people that my parents knew or know, just as there'd be people who might come in from California once a month to gamble and take some things out and get some things or maybe buy something for their wife, gun owners, um, although you have to be a Nevada resident to uh, buy firearms, but there might be people who go out into the desert and practice and they buy guns or they sell their guns. And so some of it is transient. Some of it is people coming through. Some of it could be like a chic on a gambling binge and you shut down the store and uh, examine these amazing rare jewels, and for 30 minutes the store is shut while you deal with this guy. But then some of it is also Joe from down the street, who you've know, who has been a regular customer for a number of years. So you would meet. So there is a huge range of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Las Vegas is a fascinating place. Uh, I was talking on this program a few weeks ago with the writer Laura McBride. I don't know sure, if I know Laura. Familiar with her her novel We Are Called to Rise. And we're talking. Yeah. She's a transplant. She, you know, she she went there for marriage. Um, 
Right. But uh, the fact that there's there's at least two Las Vegases. There's the Strip and there's the Exotic, but then there's the kind of the regular Western suburban town. That's that's true. Um, or, you know, it's interesting because I so grew up. Um, I grew up downtown. You know, uh, my parents after school, I would go downtown. I'd be in the back of the store and I would count tickets and roll quarters. So I very much grew up in kind of on the fringes of the the tourist world and that industry and kind of one. Um, Laura, you know, teaches teaches at a community college there, and her book very much deals with kind of those suburbs and exurbs, and um, and and she and they do, you know, and she sees it as a much more suburban place. I really am of the opinion that the strip and downtown and the soul of the city very much infects those suburbs and exurbs. I think that they are linked and that there is a residual effect on, on, on everyone there. Um, it's a, it's a blue collar city and I think people move there for certain kinds of reasons. And even if it's for a normal life, it's still they've they've made a decision to move to Vegas, and that's not quite the same thing as making a decision to move to uh, Provo or to Flagstaff or to suburb Culver City in you know in, in California. So I, I I feel like that there is a link. We'll reach the the end of our time. By the way, uh, oh. uh, uh, beautiful children's good read as well, and that's uh, just people on the fringe there and. In Las yep. Vegas, right, including Runaway Children and uh, uh, a very good read. Uh, the latest uh, novel is Alice and Oliver, and it's getting amazing reviews. Make sure I, I get that in <laughs> Thank you. for you. Um, <laughs> it uh, is uh, the novel's just out and available. Charles Bach is the author and has joined us on the program today. Charles Bach, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for your time and for your interest, and, and thank you, everyone. I hope you all have great days. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio warmly congratulates our graduating interns and employees, Melissa Allison, Andrew Stoner, Jessica Sonderanger, and Lindsay Snyder, along with Evan Hall, the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, UPR Student of the Year. Your contributions to UPR further our mission of lifelong learning and inspires the UPR staff and all of our listeners. We wish you the best of luck in all of your endeavors. Kudos, graduates. I listen to Bullseye because I like new and interesting and funny and cool things, and I don't like to do the work to find those things. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'll talk to Mike Judge, the creator of King of the Hill in Silicon Valley, and with Sharon Horgan, great Amazon show Catastrophe. That's on the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. 
a production of Utah Public Radio and a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. The time now is 10 o'clock.